was still determined to push ahead. Of course. This time we take the engine. Passengers, as in the beginning, I belong to the front. You belong to the tail. Keep your place. Are you Nam Goodman Sue? Security specialist? Welcome back to Who's Filmographies. And anyway, folks, the show where we talk about filmographies. This time we take a deep dive on a train, diving into Bong Joon Ho's uh, career as we chug along here. Today we will be covering uh, 2013's Snowpiercer. Uh, that's right, Snowpiercer. Not to be confused with the Snowpiercer TV show, um, which, uh, <laughs> you know, it's inevitable. You know, some movies are good enough. I guess FX will adapt it into a show, right? It's FX, I think. Uh, anyway. Um, no, as no, 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 it's TNT. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's surprising. I think FX might be doing uh, the Parasite show, which we're not going to talk about. Or No, maybe that's no, HBO. No, that's HBO. All right, you know what, folks? Forget I said any of this. Uh, as always, I'm, uh, as always, uh, Bong Joon-ho is getting into television now. It as, oh, God, he's so... He's well, breaking he's, in that cash. Well, he's hitting the mainstream, and and I we're, well, this is the beginning of that conversation, the mainstream conversation. So before we dive into it, as always, I'm Joshua Page, and with me as always... My uh, co-host and friend, Steve Molina. I feel like the host was really him dipping his toes into the mainstream. And this was like where the train left the station. That's a great way of putting it. Because dipping the toes is, 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 is accurate. Because it's, it's, he's playing with blockbuster tropes. And he's doing a much bigger thing, like a monster movie. But it really, I feel like Snowpiercer, and we'll... We'll get into it, but Snowpiercer, I, I saw on Netflix before I even knew really who Bong Joon-ho was. So that I feel like it's for it to even make its way to Netflix word of mouth was like kind of its way of making it, especially because this is mostly American actors for, well, it's, it's mixed, but yeah. this is the first time we've seen a mostly American cast. I remember hearing about this movie a lot when it came out it was like a netflix sleeper for a while before it yep. was like uh, like you said before it was like a bong joon ho movie and everyone was like and everyone knew who he was this movie was always like the one everyone talked about on netflix but you know you always put on your list and it was like okay do i really want to watch this right now and then you watch it and you're like wow yeah how did yeah. i put this off well it's i it's funny because i remember because i mean you know, they say whatever they people compare film to like a like a wine. Like it's like if some films age like a fine wine, whatever they get better over time. But like even a a person's movie taste, I feel can change. And it's like even my movie, my my taste in movies from twenty thirteen to now has changed. And I remember watching Snowpiercer in twenty thirteen and be like, oh, this is awesome! It's a sick action movie, whatever. And now that we've been doing Bong Joon Ho as a show, I'm I've seen this movie in an entirely new light. And I'm like, okay, it's a sick action movie, but there's also like really great stuff going on that like didn't resonate with me the first time. Yeah, I feel like uh, as the years have gone on as well and social disparity has grown in pretty much every every country around the world, uh, it's left the tail car and sunlight has been put on it. You know, <laughs> it's like... Everyone can see what Bong Joon-ho is saying now in very clear terms. Well, I think what it is is that, like, for those who have been tuning in every week for the, for this show, it's like he's very um, – he's got a lot of social issues and, and political issues that he wants to touch up on in his movies. And it's almost like – and it's very clear with even a movie like – Sure. I had just said to Stephen off air that it's like this movie's more relevant now than it's ever been. And I think it comes back to that whole – corrupt society and and this whole idea of a distorted whatever you want to call it like a, a distorted government or some kind of like um um twisted you know organization that's running things behind the scenes making the the public think that this is the way of life and so it's funny because that's something like you said like in other countries like it's like that idea of dictatorship or whatever it is or 
you know, this poisonous leadership. It's kind of like something that everyone can resonate with. Yeah. Uh, hopefully we don't resonate with that stuff uh, anytime soon. Came close to it though. It came um, close, but we dodged a bullet there. We dodged a bullet there. So <laughs> you want to get into production and all that jazz? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's so, do this thing, though. Budget was $40 million. Box office returns was $86.8 million. So pretty good. Pretty good. Made its money pretty, back. Yeah. Uh, the idea of making this movie stemmed for Bong Joon-ho around the time of the host. So he's had this one percolating in his mind for a good amount of time. Uh, it's originally based on a French graphic novel. I have the name of the French graphic novel. So in addition to butchering the Korean later in this, in this uh, episode, I'll butcher some French. Uh, <laughs> it's called Les Transpersinage. Sure. You went for it, and that's all that counts. That is all that counts. But Bong was a big fan of comics and graphic novels growing up and he picked this one up and I don't know something about the themes of the graphic novel really just stuck with him it it's almost like he's been having these ideas for quite some time or something it's very very, uh, very interesting so what's going on up what's here? going on I never know man <laughs> um it's interesting that this is like it's a graphic novel that I'm trying to think because he had something else. What didn't? Well, I don't know if it was Memories of Mur of Murder that was based off of a off of a book. He was he has these little inspirations here and there that seem to be they seem to be very small and yet it's just like they kind of just hit with him hard and it gives him this sense of take his story in a new direction because as we say every week for with the with Bong it's like he's he's doing something different every with every movie so. Yeah. Um, this does clearly. feel the most you're right and this does feel the most like a comic book movie or a graphic novel if you will you know so it's very it is a graphic novel so, so it's so it really is uh yes yeah, this, very different uh, this does feel like a graphic novel bong said the film is about humanity's survival and it would have been odd to only have north and south korean uh, as survivors so that is why he uh cast American and British and European actors in this film because he wanted an international cast in here. Though the movie is mostly in English, Bong Joon-ho said that the film is actually Korean. It's a Korean film with English actors because all the financers of this movie were Koreans. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah. that's very interesting because it, it brings up this. So, I mean, is it technically... It was produced by Koreans. It was produced by Koreans. So this is, so it's, so it is, because it's like you, you draw that line where like, is it a foreign film or is it an American film? And even though it feels this American. This is a wholly international film because <clears throat> Bong is obviously Korean. His DP was Korean, but a lot of the people who worked on the set were from all over the place. Well, it's funny you say that because I guess Harvey Weinstein had produced, I guess Weinstein's ever produced this. Weinstein, yes, let's, we, we can talk about this now. Weinstein did not produce it, but he did distribute the movie. So it's the only reason I bring it up, because the top note on IMDb for this movie is that um, director Bong often clashed with producer Harvey Weinstein, who frequently interfered with the film in order to create his version of the story. And uh, among many requests, uh, Weinstein insisted on having the fish scene removed in of more action where Bong said he considered it his favorite shot in the film and it was adamant to keep it telling Weinstein he wanted to keep the shot for personal reasons as a tribute to his late father who's a fisherman so upon hearing this Weinstein said that oh family is very important so he granted Bong the wish to keep the shot in the film but in a later in a later interview uh, Bong Joon-ho said verbatim it was a fucking lie my father was not a fisherman <laughs> <laughs> So it's just, it's funny that like we come back to um, what episode was, oh, it was the episode of the host for the folks who didn't listen, that we've made note of uh, Bong's uh, rebel re rebellion against the, the, man. The, the norm, against the man, because he was offered monster movies after he did the host and denied him. And that's where last week we talked about Mother and that 
was very poignant and very personal and a, a different change of pace. So it's funny that this keeps coming back to him being like, all right, you know what I mean? I'm going to do what I can to get my movie made, but it's, I'm still going to do it the way I want to do it. He took on Harvey Weinstein. I know that like a lot of now that seems like a joke. It's like, okay, like how hard could it be to push over Harvey Weinstein? You have to think about it. Okay. I'm not, obviously I'm not defending Weinstein at all, but it took like 30 to 40 years into his career before allegations hit the light of day, okay? That's because he had raw power that he will fucking kill you if anything leaked out. You know, you have to, in this time, in 2012, 13, whenever they're finalizing this movie, Weinstein was like a powerhouse, okay? (laughs) So for Bong Joon-ho to go up against him as a first time, like making an American film, that's huge. Yeah, it's really big. It shows more that he's always, I mean, we like, again, we keep saying it, but he's really, he's always had this kind of like, um, um, like this adamantly persistent um, attitude and just like- He doing has artistic what, doing, integrity. He does exactly what he wants to do. Like you said, he fights, the, he, he doesn't take it from the man, you know? <laughs> Some artistic integrity. Oh, man. Really something. <laughs> that is something. You're not really? artistic and you have no integrity. <laughs> Seinfeld jokes. So um, good. So for filming, they built the entire train. Every car was lined up. It was a 540-foot set, which is massive because literally each train was built. Uh and not only that, but each train car was put on rigs so that they can make the uh, set vibrate as they went along. It's, it's, ama- it's amazing that they did that. That's, that's dedication. It's interesting because um, you look at the completely different approach that was taken by Wes Anderson when we talked about Darcy His train Lang. movie? His train movie. <laughs> A very different train movie. Um <laughs> But in his train movie, he actually went on a train ride. Like, they filmed on a real train. Mm-hmm. And here, Bong Joon-ho used green screens and uh, built a set. I mean, granted, what Wes Anderson was doing and what Bong Joon-ho were doing are completely different. You probably need the set space to have choreographed fights. But they it's used, just interesting yeah. how different the approaches were. They used their budgets very differently but both stories were also telling very different um they had very, they, both films had were telling very different stories yeah um both were about brotherly love there's really a lot of brotherly love going on in these in these train movies i guess trains bring people together i mean look at um what was it before all the movies before sunset before nah well, this movie is really about how a train can tear people apart right like Oh, well, yeah, if you really want to get into it, this is... Trains bring people physically together just so they can tear each other apart. Sometimes literally, with with, with axes and, and weapons and... Um, and guns and craziness. Um, I, um, and, and, a, and a Terminator, apparently, because that, that's uh, security guard Franco. Oh, he, yeah. Like, literally would not die. He was a fucking Terminator. I, I will say, and we'll obviously talk about it throughout, but I like that... Um, just for the folks who haven't heard, it's like every week we keep bringing up that it's, um, he's like, it's Bong keeps trying to kind of outdo himself. He keeps trying to be different with it, the next movie. And he, it's funny that especially Asian films get the stereotype of like being action movies or whatever, you know, like martial arts or samurai films or whatever. And it's funny that up until now, uh, Bong Joon-ho has been telling very just kind of simplistic stories even with the host it's a monster movie but it's so much about this family and then for snowpiercer he's still got a deep moralistic message but it's really he went for it he just went like a gonzo crazy action sequences like he's never really done before and so yeah but you and i both know that he loves his drop kicks so oh man Bong he loves, loves his drop kicks <laughs> the dp hong kyung pio again i apologize said that there were only three real camera angles the entire filming. So if you're filming to the left, that means that it that's toward the tail. If you're filming to the right, that's toward the engine. 
the audience empirically will know that because if as you're going to the right, you know that means you're going forward. You're going to straight up to the engine. It's pretty cool that they do it in that way because it definitely feels when you're watching it, it feels, and I don't, I don't mean this in a condescending way because it's, it's not, it's hard to use it positively, but it feels like a, like a platform video game at times where it's like, you're literally like ending one level and it's like the camera's moving and it's literally feels like they're, okay, what's next? And it's kind of like, they're literally moving. Like it's, it's, you're anticipating what the next room is going to be, what the next cart is going to be. And it's like the way that the camera moves with it, you actually feel like, okay, they're going forward. But if they are literally moving in the opposite direction, they're literally going backwards because it's the way the train is separated and with the colors and each cart getting more and more vibrant. It's like really wild. Yeah, it was, it's really well done. And it's such a simple thing, but it's so like subliminal that you don't even like, you probably catch on, but not really, you know? Uh, And obviously the third shot are just stagnant shots that don't move at all. Um, Harris Ed Harris said that he has never been on a set that was calmer or quieter, which is, <laughs> is pretty interesting. Granted, he didn't have to be near any of the fight scenes. That's but, true. But it's also ironic for this movie. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think he went near any of the stunt stuff because it just has nothing to do with him. Anyway, that's all I got. So you ready to get into the plot? Um, as always, I don't think we have many Asian names, but as always, as Stephen has been apologizing, there's going to be much less. I, I'm seeing already the names I can pronounce them, but um, much less Korean names for us to not butcher. But all apologies and events, audio viewer discretion advised. Viewer discretion advised. Over the credits, snow begins to fall over a black background. We hear radio footage of increasingly more worried reporters discussing climate change. Their final communication is about CW7 being released into the air to a, to lower temperatures, which, you know, they're adding a chemical into the air, which is how we got into this situation. Um, Rosen cars are then revealed. A train zooms by. No, I will say, because you mentioned, um, you know, with cars freezing over, I will say the only real note um, about it is that he had said at some point, Long Jun Ho said this was supposed to be a direct um, product of like fear of global warming. Um, so I guess that's where it starts. Um, well, it literally starts with global warming because over the credits you hear nothing but talk about global warming, and right. that's how we got into this mess because they tried to heal, they tried to save the Earth with this chemical they released into the air, which ended up freezing everything over. The exact note is that Bong wanted to underline the pressing danger of global warming by setting the year uh, that CW7 is dispersed as tw- uh, the year 2014. And yeah. this movie technically gets to get came in 2013, so he was foreseeing a post-apocalyptic future. It's like he knew what was coming or something. <laughs> Armed guards enter the tail of the train. By row, they tell people to sit down. Standing after he is told to sit is Curtis Everett. Uh, this guy, Chris, Chris, um, Chris Evans, 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 Chris, Chris. I think I've heard of this guy somewhere. He's, he seems familiar. I couldn't recognize him with the Dude, beard. But... You know who that is? That's the Human Torch from Fantastic yeah, Four. Yeah, I didn't recognize him with the beard, man. Fantastic Four. I from a uh, not another teen movie when he has a. Uh, he had a little whipped cream and a, a banana hanging out of his ass, you know. It's just he's very <laughs> funny. That one. Very funny, very funny in that movie. Anyway, that's Chris Evans. He <laughs> is scouting out the security of the doors just ahead. Protein bars, a gelatin-like bar, are distributed to everyone in the back. Curtis and Edgar, Jamie Bell, Jamie Bell. I didn't. I completely forgot he was in this movie. It's wild. Kate Mara's husband. Look at that. There are a lot of people who popped up in this that I forgot were in it. Or I guess I didn't appreciate even more until like later on. Yeah. Curtis and Edgar, Jamie Bell, want Tanya Octavia Spencer's son, Timmy, Timmy's protein bar. Inside the bar is a red note. Curtis hands the note to Gilliam, John Hurt. I'm using the word hand very loosely because he has an umbrella for a hand. The note simply lists the name of the person who built the train security, but is now in prison. 
Gilliam and Curtis talk about the impending revolution. Curtis wants to take the engine and kill Wilfred. That is all that matters. Once taken, Curtis wants to put Gilliam in charge. While Curtis feels Gilliam is, a, is the leader, everyone else believes Curtis is the, is the man in charge. Which he, he really is. Well, Curtis is the right. one making like all the calls. Because yeah. we'll find out why later. But he Gilliam, establishes... wants to, Gilliam wants to be able to like have a little bit of a, uh, it wasn't me situation. Going. Right, of course. But he wants to cause some kind of spark. Which I don't know if you made a note of that Wilford is like running the show here he's no i did i mean we can say that now wilford is the man in charge he literally right. built the train right he is the man who he's built man. it all guards enter the tale again this time with a woman in a yellow coat claude emma levine they measure the children and take timmy and another boy andrew ewan bremer whose son is being taken throws a shoe at the guard the guard quickly grabs Andrew, rips off his shirt, and lathers him up with a goo. As everyone in the tale is forced to watch, Andrew's arm is placed outside of the train for seven minutes. Minister Mason, Tilda Swinton, enters. Holding the shoe, uh, Mason gives a monologue with a very clear message. Know your place. Andrew's arm is taken out of the train wall and shattered by a mallet. Rough stuff. Rough, rough opening stuff. Rough stuff. Now, I just want to make a note because Josh and I have talked about this a couple times. Just I, on a personal note, I love when you can like see just how much fun an actor is having on set. And Tilda Swinton looks like she's having the time of her life, being like this deplorable human being. She, I love her in general. I just think she's a great dramatic actress. She's good at what she does. But anytime she's this chaotic very like out of left field kind of character she's it's really something she's um you can tell right from there with this the, the coat big glasses it's like oh she's here to she's here to bang i mean she's here to like have fun but yeah i mean it's you, really you weird. could just tell she's having so much fun doing i love this, it i love it so much doing the seven minute monologue where you're just like holy shit yeah it's really it's selling a lot right from the get-go in a, in a way that works revolutionary preparations are expediting a barrel barricade is being formed and Curtis is getting Crolone. The next day, the guards arrive to hand out protein bars. Curtis has the angel and demon on his shoulders expressing the best move. <laughs> Gilliam expresses caution while Edgar says the time to attack is now. Cur Curtis's mind is made up. He marches up to a guard and holds the gun to his head. Guard pulls the trigger, but nothing. Realizing there are no bullets, the tail erupts. Using the barrels, the doors are kept open. It was like, uh, I, you know, it's underplayed in the synopsis because there's just not enough time. But like yeah. the subtlety of, sorry, the subtlety of like uh, learning that there are no bullets. I mean, ultimately we find out there are bullets, but these people don't have them. Um, yeah, they're they're creating a lot of, um, not really. Well, they're twists, but they're they're a lot of little surprises right right from the, the get go. You know, this isn't quite what you're expecting. You know, no, it just reinforces how good of a leader Curtis is that he picked up on some such a small note that Mason threw out at some random guard. She he caught when she said like, "Put that useless thing away." No one else caught that. Not even like the audience catches that in when it's said, and then like. When it's pointed out, you're like, holy crap, how did I miss that? That It oh, just like good. reinforces how good Curtis is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they're setting up his uh, his, his, his James Bond-like qualities, you know. Or, or his, uh, not really James Bond. I don't know who's really a mastermind at picking out kind of things, but, you know. I don't know, Captain America, maybe? I've heard of that who's guy. Who's that guy? Who's that guy? Who's that guy? I mean, who's that guy? Um, they, they make it to the prison car and open the cell of Namgung Minsu. Min our boy, Song Kang-ho. Now, just a fun note. Bong Joon-ho was asked why he picked this name for that character. Yeah. And he said, because it's the hardest thing for an American to say. <laughs> That's literally the reason why. I love it so much. Um, Curtis wants uh, Nam's help to get to the front of the train. Nam takes a pause and lights one of the world's last cigarettes. Nam then hops, hops out from his cell and opens the cell of his daughter, Yana. Uh, Go Ah Sung, in which Nam helps to agree for two kronal for uh, for every door he opens. It's really some black market stuff over here. 
Um, the next car is filled with bunks, but no people. The rebels move on to the next car where they find Paul, played by Paul Laser. This guy was in The Host. Uh, for anyone who remembers, yeah, he was my right. least favorite character in that yeah, movie. Yeah, that's right. The, uh, that's that American. He thinks he's slick. Paul is hard at work making protein bars. As the, as they, uh, as the rebels marvel and splurge on the still warm bars, Curtis does some investigation. He finds that the bars are made from insects. What a twist. Um, Curtis, nice. Lum- yeah, it's really gross. Curtis lambasts against Paul, but there's little to do. They prepare to open the next door, but the semi-clairvoyant Yana warns against it. That was like a weird moment in the movie that is never brought up again, the clairvoyancy of Yana. Like, it's, 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 talked, it's talked about in the first like two doors that she's around but then it's never right like used again i thought they would do more with it i thought that maybe it would play more into just something later on down the road me too and then it amounted to nothing which again fine it's just interesting that they would bring it up and then drop it well he's good at like like as we said with mother last week like he's good at sprinkling little details that may seem irrelevant but then they come full circle but this was like almost something that maybe the daughter thinks she is and then maybe it's there's a reveal that she's not but then there's a purpose to it but i don't know if they had more that they needed to nix or if that's from the graphic novel the door is open to reveal hooded guards carrying axes a battle royale breaks out but is stopped the guards begin to count down the passing of uh of the yank oh boy you, you, you can do it Gekaterina Bridge, hey. which symbolizes a new year. They plow through massive ice buildup on the track. Once the passage has been deemed safe, Mason enters the room. She orders 74% of everyone killed. The guards ready their night vision goggles. They pass through a long tunnel and a, mass- and a massacre begins until Curtis orders a match be lit. Andrew sprints with a torch. This was like almost like an Olympic moment. It kind of reminded me of like that Apple commercial, you know, which one, like the original Apple commercial where the guy runs oh, in yeah. with a torch and like, yeah. Note about this scene. They said there was no additional lighting used for the torchlight fight scene. Oh, that's it was, funny. That's all they had was what you saw was all natural from the torch. Mason begins to panic and tries to make her way out the door. She is struck with a knife in the leg. Edgar is then taken by a guard. Curtis must choose between saving Edgar or catching Mason. Always looking forward, Curtis chooses Mason. Edgar is killed. Mason, held by Curtis's axe, orders the guard to stop. One final attempt is made by a guard to kill Curtis, but but Yona kills the guard instead. One note I wanted to point out, or just like note in general, Curtis in this movie is always moving forward mm-hmm. always there's i mean there are moments he stops obviously and you know in the beginning he's moving back but i think once they breach a certain point there's very few moments when he is walking to the right he is always walking to the uh, sorry he's always walking to the right very rarely is he walking to the left he is constantly moving forward well, that's why I was saying before, like the, how it has that video game like quality of like it's kind, it's oh, it's like a platform game or it's kind of moving. But he specifically is moving. I, you know, obviously he's the protagonist and he's on this mission to move. But it is, you really feel like they build that suspense of like what's going to happen next. You know what I mean? He's constantly. Everyone else is almost kind of content where they are because I guess mm-hmm. they're used to it, and therefore is the commentary on people being comfortable in their own situations. But um, yeah, he's always on the go. Yeah, and I, I know we were joking about Captain America before, but this is truly the deviation point between the two characters mm-hmm. because there is no way that Captain America would let Edgar die. His famous quote is, we do not trade lives. You know, like, yeah, there's just well, no way he would let Edgar die in a he, Captain America. I'm not saying that... Curtis made the wrong decision. I'm just saying this is where the deviation between the two characters happens. If anyone who wants to like pick at his acting and how limited his roles are, no, they're very different. These are two very different people. They also come from different points of desperation. Um, But it certainly is another showcase that 
um, Chris Evans is not as one note as he, as people may think. Yeah. Um, he's definitely got good acting chops and it shows in scenes like these. I think Knives Out was his true, like, oh, I'm, cha- I'm changing things up. Well, but, yeah, I mean, he proved, I mean, he's a comedy goldmine in another teen movie, like I said, but Knives Out, he's, he, Knives Out, he channels that a little bit, but he's, he's good. He, he's better than people give him credit for, I feel. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Tanya and Andrew question Mason about their children. Mason says she does not know. She then goes off on a bipolar rant, both blaming Wilford for everything while proclaiming him to be merciful. It was a very interesting monologue. Mason quickly agrees to help the rebels get the engine if her life is spared. Um, just real quick, when you that, that little bit we're talking about, both blaming Wilford, but also pro- proclaiming him to be merciful. Is I, re- I when, it, when I watch this again, I always try and read up stuff about the movie just to see other takes or watch videos or something. And, or, and there was a, there was a whole religious allegory that someone had pointed out in uh, Wilford representing like a, a false Messiah, like a God, mm-hmm. like the whole idea is the train is he's literally playing God, but like the whole idea is like, and you see it the more like, especially with the children in the classroom when that comes up, but it's like, you see this whole idea that they're almost like worshiping Wilford. It's almost kind of like he's this savior because he's giving these people life. And at the same time, like. See, I read it as like, I mean, God is a fine analogy too. Ed Harris has played that before in the Truman yeah. Show, you know? Yeah, 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 of course. Um, but to me, it was more of like a commentary on just because I know Bong Joon-ho at this point, and it mm-hmm. was more commentary on fascism to me. Oh, of course. And I just I just thought it was an interesting take, and that's, um, but keep going with fascism. No, it's very similar to what you were saying. You know, uh, people in a fascist regime, look at North Korea, they idolize Kim Jong-un, not necessarily for anything he's really done, just because they're grilled, or like, since they were children, they were taught he is the greatest thing ever. And we'll get to that in literally a minute when they get to the, um, you know, the school car. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just interesting that they kind of tease that with um, Mason's yeah, he even dialogue. Has like, he even has like propaganda videos. Obviously, we'll, again, we'll get to that later. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll dive into it. The next train car is a garden followed by an aquarium, as we said, Bong's favorite scene. Um, where no, Mason, no, no. his favorite scene was when they were about to fight and they split the fish open. Oh, that's the scene. That's um, yeah, no, that's that's right. Um, <laughs> where uh, Mason suggests that everyone has some sushi. Sushi is only served twice a year in January and July. Mason shares what we will come to see is Wilford's philosophy: the train is a delicate ecosystem. Love it. Love some dialogue over sushi. <laughs> <laughs> I just like how um. Everyone knew how to eat the sushi, you know. Uh, not not necessarily Mason, but the other, the rebels around Curtis. It's like, I guess they haven't had that in what, like 18, 19 years? Are you're they supposed just... to get the idea it's 2031 at this point. Yeah. So you're, and if they only eat it twice a year and it's supposed to be an upper class kind of thing, you get but the idea. My point is the people in the tail never get this ever. That's weird. Yeah. They weren't like devouring it like it was like gold here. Yeah. I, I don't know, but maybe they were safe. It just seems it? like more. Know. It just seems like more of a casual meal, which seemed off to me. Considering so, how rare it is. Yeah, not yeah. just how rare, but for them, this is like the first good meal they've had in like I don't even know nineteen year, eighteen yeah, years. Yeah, yeah, not just the not just the slop, you know. Eat your fucking slap, you dildo, you know, as once they once said in Friday the thirteenth part five, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. I'm so sorry uh, to bring up bad memories. <laughs> uh, I'm surprised that movie didn't come up last week with Mother. Cause isn't isn't Mother just a remake of their relationship? Oh shit. Getting really defensive when people call them stupid and <laughs> Is Man, oh, we're dropping the ball here. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, boy. Holy smokes. The train is a delicate ecosystem. The next car is a classroom. <laughs> what a classroom it is. Tanya and Andrew ask about their children. All, I know, all anyone wants to know is that they came fr- from the back and went to the front. The teacher, Allison Pill, 
plays a Wilford propaganda video and goes over the history of the train. They even pass the remains of the revolting seven, a musical number then breaks out. Classic, notable, notable musical number. Musical number, yeah. Uh, Finally, the New Year's eggs are passed out to the students and rebels. Inside Curtis's egg is a red note that reads blood. Guns are pulled from the egg uh, baskets and fired. Andrew is hit. The TV then cuts in to show Gilliam being shot in the head. Curtis loses it and kills Mason. This scene escalates so fast. That escalated um, quickly. That escalated quickly. I mean, that really got a hand <laughs> fast. You really killed the guy. Uh, Curtis says that they must move forward. The rebels move to they the next. Must move forward. Always moving forward. I love it. The shots. Uh, the shots. The the rebels move through the next few cars, which are extremely lavish. They are being pursued by the now armed guards, led by Fro the Elder, played by Vlad Ivanov, the Terminator. <laughs> He's literally a Terminator. I am quite sure of it. He's going to chase down the children in the snow later in the movie. I tell I, in the sequel, I mean. I love it. Uh, on a wide turn, Franco and Curtis open fire on one another, puncturing holes in the train. The guards catch up to the rebel crew in a sauna. A fire and knife fight break out, leading to the death of Tanya and the seeming death of Franco. Curtis is fueled by anger at this point. Uh, no pun intended, fueled, you know, like the trains being fueled. Uh, he and Namgoon and, y- and Yona push through the next few cars, make it to the door with the W on it. Wilford's Chambers. W. <laughs> another pun on the, another play in the W. Big W. I don't know, man. I think he <laughs> was really coming after Weinstein this time. I'm quite sure that uh, Wilford is just a front man. You know, it's really Cheney running the strings here. <laughs> It has to be. Uh, Curtis tells uh, Nam to open the door. Nam Goon says, first, the Crolone. Curtis freaks out, throwing Crolone and kicking Wilford's door. Nam subdues Curtis and gives him the world's last cigarette. Curtis shares the horrors that he has lived through the past 18 years, how Gilliam showed him the merciful, righteous path, but Curtis still blames Wilford for everything. Nam tells Curtis that he is trying to open the wrong door. With the Crolone... Numb plans to open the gate to the outside world every year. He's going to make a bomb out of it. I didn't make that clear, but he's trying to make a bomb out of the drug. Yes. Um, And every year, Nam has looked out the window while passing over the bridge. Every year, the plane below them becomes more and more visible. Nam believes it is possible to live outside the train. All Nam needs is the match Curtis has. Claude opens Wilford's door and invites Curtis to meet Wilford, the big meeting Ooh. <laughs> uh, let's take a moment before we go into curtis's boudoir here and um just talk about curtis's monologue because we kind of glazed over it um, that's like some heavy stuff His, the uh, monologue literally starts do you know what i hate about myself i know what babies taste like i know babies taste better yeah yeah or something like that i know what people taste like and he talks about ba- babies when when you said the line earlier um, the world's last cigarette. I said, "Oh, and there was the the dialogue there." I was mixing up my scenes. This is the dialogue I was talking about. It's really, we. I mean, in terms of our our awards, it's the you think about the lower class, and you're like, "Well, that's a uh, this was unexpected." Some rough <laughs> um, stuff. <laughs> it really is. It's a it's a low point. It's really uh, you realize how desperate this situation really is of all this. Not just how desperate it is, but how desperate it has been for the past 18 years. Right. This is They've just had to live through horrors that are unimaginable in reality. It, knowing what children taste like, because they, they've they literally had to go to cannibalism. It's some crazy shit. It's... Um... It's a real turning point for the movie because I know it's building towards the climax. It's kind of like you're reminded how bad this world really is, how bad this specific world on this train really is. Yeah. All right. Uh, Wilford, Ed Harris, is revealed in his pajamas cooking steaks. He begins by congratulating Curtis on being the first person to walk the entirety of the train from tail to engine, which I don't think is true at all. Um, I know we find out it's not true, but... Whatever, it's just a speech he gives to people. Yeah, but I know that, like, his girl, Claude, who collected the children 
is in his engine room and she went to the very last car. So that's obviously a lie from the beginning. Wilford begins his Sith temptation monologue. He says that everyone, not just the people in the tail, are trapped on this train. He continues by saying the train has a very del- has a very delicate ecosystem. In order for all to survive, there must be sacrifices, which is why he and Gillum orchestrated the uprising. The front needs to work with the tail. The revolt was supposed to end on the water car, but Curtis's exceptional leadership skills got him further. Wilford orders everyone but 18 people be killed in the tail. Dark stuff. Uh, Curtis is in disbelief that Gillum would ever work with Wilford. Wilford repeats Gilliam's words back to Curtis, all but confirming it. Yeah, that heavy stuff. Really rough right now. Wilford explains further that on such a balanced ecosystem, fear needs to be used to maintain order. The final seduction comes when Wilford puts Curtis in the engine, which is, quote-unquote, eternity itself. Wilford leaves Curtis, giving him something he cannot remember, a moment alone to think. Curtis drops to his knees. When Wilford returns, he offers Curtis his station. It's a Willy Wonka moment, really. (laughs) How would you like all of this? It really is. For the first time, Curtis looks back to see Nam and Yon fighting off the upper class and Franco the indestructible guard. Yona runs into the room and lifts the floorboards to reveal Timmy cleaning the gears. Little Timmy. Little Timmy. Wilford says that only a child's hands can fit in the me- in to the mechanisms. Curtis comes back to it and punches Wilford. He then plunges his arm into the gears so that Timmy can get out. Yon grabs the match and lights the fuse. The door blows, the echoes of which causes an avalanche. The train topples over. Yuan and Timmy wake up and get off the train. They seem to be the only survivors of the crash. In the distance, they see a polar bear climbing up a mountain. The end. What an end it is. That's how you know it's fake right there. They think polar bears are out, going to outlive humans. Uh, oh, R.I.P. Polar Bears. I don't know, man. It's... I don't know. I've seen pictures of some very hungry polar bears, and it's very, very sad. And the... I just do not see how much longer they can survive up there. The, um, I see a lot of, like, the planet Earth, the David Attenborough narrated stuff, and some of it makes me sad. It always gets a little sad. You see the animals dying. But anytime I see skinny polar bears or hungry polar bears, it breaks my heart. Yeah. Anytime you see any hungry animal, it breaks your heart because you're like, oh, man. Just, there's so many bad people in the world who could be, you know, provide food for these animals. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. So sad. Anyway, anyway let's um, get into the categories. Josh, do you want to remind the good people what the categories are? Absolutely. Uh, so for the people at home who have or have not listened, we are going for best or worst character. Uh, best genre bend, as in, uh, you know, as always, when the movie takes a turn and uh, maybe the genre changes for a moment or two or for a, a while, who knows. Um, the worst moment for the lower class. I mean, this whole movie is the worst moment for the lower class, but um, the best twist and, of course, the best metaphor. Since you read, I don't know if you want me to kick off these Go awards. So, kick off with your best or worst character. So this was a little tricky, but then it, it ended up being easy. Um, I was going to go with Namgoon as a best, mm-hmm. but I went with uh, Mason as a best worst character for Tilda Swinton. I, be- I used best worst because like, she's the best worst character. Like I loved to hate her. I loved, we talked about it earlier, so we don't really have to talk too much. She's clearly having fun with the role. Um, I mean, it's Tilda Swinton. She's incredible, but like she's, she's a good villain in the sense like i really like i wanted her to die i really like when it when you get excited by how much fun a villain is having and you just like how de- de- despicable they are how deliciously evil, if you will i don't know she really nailed it for me i mean the whole cast there's tons of great i don't know great and terrible characters but she was right in that sweet spot for me yeah i don't think that there's any bad performances in this movie I, I think Tilda is a really good answer, but just for 
differentials sake, I'm going to say that I'm going to go with Wilford, Ed Harris. I think in any other hands, this could have been a much more over-the-top kind of performance. Oh, of course. And the subtlety of who this man is, it, like... It's such, again, we, I keep saying this over the Bong Joon-ho podcast, but he subverts expectations. You're expecting this, uh, I don't know, you, you don't know what to expect. Wilford is just like stamped in every car that has been passed by um, Curtis and his crew. He is literally hovering over everything on this train. He built the train. And to, when you get up there and you just see a man in pajamas cooking, and talking in a monotone voice. It's just not what you're expecting. But it makes sense that that's who he is. So I'm, I don't mean to cut you off, but just to like create a small like just discussion about it is that it's very interesting because movies in the past have done that kind of thing where the villain's very relaxed, but like it can sometimes feel cliche or like you said, over the top, or like it can feel, I don't know. There's like, there's so many ways you can handle it wrong. But with Ed Harris playing it and he's literally just in his robe cooking a steak and like it's very bizarre because it's like he's so comfortable being who he is that he doesn't because you expect someone on a throne you expect someone with a loud booming voice and you expect someone with like a scepter or something you know what I mean like that's the that's how we've been conditioned to think of violence yeah and at the end of the day he is admitting to Curtis, yeah, I don't believe half the bullshit I'm telling the people on this train. It's just right. shit I need to tell them in order to maintain order. Like, he, it, everything to him is a numbers game. It's all right. cold and calculated, and it works very well for me. Uh, you know, I wrote in the synopsis that he has, like, Sith-like qualities. He's just very manipulative and it's so true. a quiet whisper. It makes him that much creepier, but it makes it also that much more realistic. It makes him that much more of a, like a more terrifying kind of character. Yeah. So best genre bend. Uh, I feel like this one was a pretty easy one with the classroom erupting into a song. Unfortunately, I have the same answer. as. I don't think it's a necessarily <laughs> a bad song. It's just uh, funny that it happens because, and What's her face? Allison Pill's face getting so into the song. Her eyes are like literally like fluttering and like she's like orgasming over this fucking song about Wilfred. It, it's so good and it's so really funny and completely different for two minutes. The exact I completely agree. And just just to create a discussion since I have the same answer, it's kind of like I f the this the the take I read about Wilford being God they they went on a whole religious bit but they said this is like the classroom is like church you know this is how the kids of like them singing songs are singing hymns about like their God about their leader but it's what it does is what it did is it reminded me so like for genre I put like it's almost like horror because this is an action movie but really to, I, at the end of the day if you're gonna put this under one category it's action but it almost goes and in, turns into like creepy horror or like I don't know what you call it like um. Like it almost reminded me of like Wicker Man, where like the characters are so it's like it's like a that. cult. It's very like they're all and they're bouncy and they're kind of like smiling and like it's all this impending doom and they're they're being brainwashed. And I guess that's where the that's where the take I saw brings religion into it, where it's like you're you're creating a little cult. You're creating this, you know, right your your children are being raised this way to believe that this is the way of life. And when that scene kicks in, it's unlike any other scene in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, it's. I feel like it's the only logical. I was about choice. to say that's what I said. It's the only logical answer. So, what is your worst <laughs> moment for the lower class? Well, aside from the movie itself, <laughs> um, I had to go with Curtis's reveal of resorting to cannibalism. That yeah, that has. That's honestly the only answer. It's the whole movie is the like I said the whole movie is the worst moment for the lower class. This whole thing is a poignant like take on the lower class. But that line, you know what I, you know what I hate about myself. I know what people taste like. It's like it makes it that much more revealing of how and we don't have to go into it at length since we mentioned it in the the plot synopsis. But it is it takes this whole lower class conversation to another level and i know it's a fictional story but it's really like yikes yeah. well if i could 
since I'm going to take best twist, I'm going to integrate my worst moment for the lower class into the sure. twist. Sure. Curtis's monologue ends with his admiration for Gilliam and how he chopped off his own arm to save a baby and how he paved the way for goodness in the tail of the train, which is why he loved Gilliam. So when you get to the twist that Gilliam was actually working for Wilford the whole time, it's just, you could see how soul crushing it is in that moment for Curtis. That changes his entire life. Because that's all he's because, known. He's only known this one side of it where he's like, we're fighting for justice and we're fighting for what Gilliam wanted. Yeah, his, his North Star for what is right has always been Gilliam. And now that is being ripped out from under him. And maybe he's, and you know, he looks like he fell seduced to Wilford for at least a minute or two. Because he's probably thinking if Wilford worked with this guy, maybe I should too. Maybe, you mean Gilliam. Gilliam, sorry. Because yeah. Gilliam, no, no, I know what you meant. But, um, well, I mean, so I, again, I think it's the only ob obvious answer, so I'll just tag along since <laughs> this, is, this seems to be a trick. I mean, I, I mean, what I will say, the, to just repeat, because I know it's, we don't want to just keep repeating what the other one is saying, but it's like, what I'll say is that this movie's, like you were saying about Ed Harris being the bad guy and like the way he does it, is that this movie's filled with, and this is a, I mean, this kind of segues into final thoughts, but I'm not going to go on, a, on a, a, a whole spiel here. But it's like, for this being the first true American feeling movie that out of Bong's career, it's funny that he picks these kind of moments and characters and twists that feel like cliche mo moments you'd see in American movies. And like I've said in the past, he, do he handles moments that in the hands of standard American directors could feel silly or stupid or over the top. And with... Gilliam, that twist with Gilliam having worked with Wilford is something that's like, oh, here's the reveal. Like the good guy you like thought was whatever, good all along is working with the bad guy. Like you've seen twists like that in, in just in worse movies. So when you watch how it's handled here, it's, it's genuine. You know what I mean? It feels like you, yeah. it feels a little like they're pulling the, the rug from under you in, a, in a, a real way. If I could, again, like, since we're on a roll here, I'm going to jump into my best metaphor. Of course. Um, my best metaphor was the sequence when Curtis has to decide is now the moment to attack. And quite literally, he is shot with Gilliam and Edgar on, one, on each shoulder. And Gilliam is advising caution. Don't go too far. And now it makes perfect sense with the twist why he was doing that because he didn't want Curtis to get hurt and because he was hoping to, uh, uh, you know, he wanted the uprising to happen, but he also knew that it had to be quelled. So he's trying to escalate, but not too far that everyone dies. Right. So that's my best metaphor. Well, he can only go so far in order to create to keep creating order which i'll segue into my best twist my best sorry i'll segue into my best metaphor is i mean it's kind of lazy but it's like the train itself i said it's the metaphor because what it is, uh, is it's, it, the train itself is a corrupt but working system in which people are told that it will cause their death and the end of the world if it stops moving and stops working so this is where the whole point of the movie comes into fruition and goes into what you were saying about like here it is about like, don't go too far because of not so much of like what's literally ahead, but because of what you'll learn because of the terrible truths. It's almost that same way about, and this is where, again, I'm, I'm not going to go on a, a whole rant, but it's like, once you uncover the truths about the horrors, and this is where like the North Korea stuff comes in. It's where, it's wherever it's dictatorship. It's once you dig too deep into whatever's going on, you realize the horrors of the political society you're living in. And you can literally say that about almost any, you know, major area. This is where it starts becoming, not controversial, but it starts becoming extremely relevant about the lies that are being fed to the people. Mm. Um, and I don't know, I just think it's very interesting. It's like the people in the back of the train are just so content. I mean, they're, they hate their lives, but it's like this, this idea of, of, of further in the train is like a fantasy. In the same way that people who are in poverty are like, well, I'll never really have more than this. And so like where 
Curtis is like, you know, told like, don't go too far. Don't un don't uncover too much. Don't open the can of worms. <laughs> and Everyone then it's been conditioned to right. lead the life that they're being told they have to lead. Yeah. And it's just, yeah. The train is a good, that's a good metaphor. That's just the most literal. I'm like, the train is the metaphor. The train is itself the thing. And the but engine anyway. is eternity. So, <laughs> so, so I, I think that's a good place to get into final discussion here. Yeah. I can start. And yeah. I'm not going to start in the spot that I feel like anyone imagines me. I just feel like we've spent the last four or, yeah, four weeks blowing smoke up Bong Joon-ho's butt you know, about how he integrates his own kind of work into any genre. And that's all true. So I'm going to start with just by saying that I admire in this film, the stunt work. I just feel like the fight scenes were like very visceral and dirty. And I mean, obviously Franco is a Terminator and doesn't die, but there's even like some sudden, subtext in the fight sequences that's also really good i feel like we haven't we've never really talked about just stunt work and how impressive some of it can be and to fight in this close of quarters is like even more impressive well i mean we've talked about you know even throughout this whole episode we talked about through like how much the movie has to say about society politics whatever and just that well that's why i was like we've talked about that at length so while you're on it, just talking about stunt work and like you said in close quarters, it really impressive because I made the the gag earlier in the in the episode about how like he Bong Joon Ho never gave into like the Asian stereotypes of movies with fighting and 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 whatever and and martial arts and violence and yet this movie he like I said earlier he went for it and he really it's so interesting because he does it in a stylized way like even those <laughs> sequences where you know, it'll, it'll film really quickly. The camera will move quickly and it'll zoom in very fast on someone's face. And it's, it's almost done in a way that like John Woo or like, you know, someone like like an action director would. So it's funny Mm -hmm. because he's still, even the silhouettes of like uh, Chris Evans with the ax, with the window, the lights behind him, and even like the neon rooms and like the colors and like how the train becomes more colorful and bright as it goes along. I mean, the stunt work that's going along all with such production value behind it is so remarkable. No, that's a good thing to talk about too. The production design and costume design and just the way in which the car and people transition as you go from the tail to the front. You go from this very dark, literal dark place with people who are clearly sick and covered in filth and... You know, they're living an impoverished life. They have nothing. And then, you know, you're entering train cars that are just more lavish than the next. And how everyone is, like, clean and not just pristine, but, like, there isn't even a car where, like, people's hair is getting done. And Yeah, it's, I mean, the classroom, like... They have a nightclub. You're like, The dance club, they have the aquarium. They have, like, I mean, it's just, it's just funny. The meticulous way in which each car is designed is just amazing. Well, it's there's a lot of character to each car. It's kind of like it's kind of like Darjeeling in that way, but as we said, this is a very different take on on a train. But it's kind of that's why I think that whole notion of Chris of Curtis moving forward, you know, what's next is like it's not just for him; it's for the audience. It's like we literally, you literally don't know what's going to be in the next car by the time you get to. I mean, the aquarium's pretty, once you get to the aquarium and like, like you, um, or the nightclub, I think that's all before the classroom. Like you, it's kind of like, it, it's fun to, to anticipate what the next room is going to look like, what the next card is going to look like. And the fact that it, like you said, it's all in a tight space and for them to pull off the stunts they did, it's their, it's, I mean, at this point it's his, on a production scale, it's his biggest movie yet in the, in the sense that you and I have been going along. Well, it's clearly his biggest movie. I mean, yeah, it has. It, it's clearly his biggest movie, just in t- terms of uh, scope. You know, Mother was a generally big movie because again, it was shot two point three five. But this one, just the amount of detail that went in, like you brought up Darjeel. I don't know. I don't know how much more I have to add. I do enjoy this movie, but I will say, I don't know. I. 
it's very this isn't an underhanded thing i just wanted to like mother was such a deep and personal film and to go from mother to this it's, it's just very interesting because you're going into a completely different commercial route where well, Snowpiercer yeah. is just like meant for the mainstream audience and Mother is like clearly Correct. not. And we've been saying every episode that he's doing something very different with the following, with a follow-up film. Like every movie he does is like, it's, he's literally, he's literally just changing it up. And so it's very interesting because it's almost like you have to sacrifice one element for the other. And I'm not saying this in a pretentious, I'm not, I'm not trying not to say in a pretentious way, but it's like, he has to give up the kind of like stylized slow kind of way that like art house films like often are in terms of like dialogue and like very like, like slowly tearing away at like two or three characters. And, and by, by saying I'm he's needs to make those sacrifices in retrospect, he's also gaining this gigantic movie that Americans eat up and the box office clearly loved so that you know what I mean so it's it's kind of like a trade-off like and yet he still doesn't lose his message it's just very but it's more proof that he can just do something totally radically different that's the brilliance of his movies though and I know we keep bringing it up but he you know it's not even worth bringing up how he can you know put his messages in movies that are just completely different because we've been doing it nonstop. I mean, it's, there's a reason it keeps coming up, you know? Yeah, because that's how he works. So I think that's a good place to end the conversation. I agree. I agree. You have a pick of the week? I do, and it might be obvious, but I am going to go with 2011 Duncan Jones film Source Code because it takes place on a train. Um, that's obviously movie. a much different movie. It's much more simple. I love the concept. It's the little bit of the Groundhog Day kind of, or more relevant to right now, Palm Springs kind of thing, where the, it's just kind of a loop. Um, no, I like that it just it was more, it was obviously more kind of like a mystery, but it would like it evolved into something bigger with the sci-fi and technology. Um, I'm a sucker for all kinds of sci-fi movies. Um, and I certainly would put Snowpiercer and Source Code in like very similar categories not just for the just them being on trains but like it's just their ideas in terms of technology and science in the future and like where we're headed and so i i i just the train was what linked it and i thought like uh, you know what i mean i'll just run with it they're on um, the same tracks <laughs> and duncan jones did moon which i also liked with sam rockwell but i think he's good i haven't seen a lot from him but that movie came That's, to mind uh, david bowie's song uh that's right that's right um i forgot about that um but yeah i mean it's a fun little movie uh, source code it's very clever and you think you you know where it's going and then it kind of keeps changing a little bit and so uh, i have not much to say about it but i'm going to recommend it so that's a good one uh <sighs> i'm going to go a slightly different uh, yep. way i'm going to go with uh 1926's the general starring and directed by buster keaton uh if you have not watched this movie I know that it's a hard sell with uh, it being with it being black and white and silent, but I can assure you, you will laugh. I can assure you, you will just be in awe of the stunt work in that movie. The way in which, because you also have to put it into context, the stunts in that that movie are all Buster Keaton. There's no stunt men, and there's no way to like fake the stunts he's doing. This is not CGI. This movie was like one of the most expensive movies filmed at that point because he literally had to build a bridge to blow it up. <laughs> it's like insane, the uh, work and talent that went into that movie. And right. you will laugh, I promise. That is my pick of the week. That's good. That's totally unexpected. I literally would not have expected that. But I like that you you brought up the similarity of the stunts. I, you know, that's that's good. Yeah. That's, a, that's a, the general, that old buster. Yeah, I will say there is the one very big negative, which is the fact that he is a Confederate soldier. But, uh, you know, but, you know, get get over it. There's not much race relations in this movie. It's about Uh, an idiot. Right. You have to look at the bigger message. I mean, and that was, it's a hundred year old movie. It's whatever. But yeah. 
things were things things flew a little bit more uh, then but anyway and uh, <laughs> the south was seen as something different you know ask dw griffith well, you can uh, listen to our disney podcast where we talk about that often <laughs> Well, we best be hitting the old dusty trail. Time, time to settle up. Uh, anyway. Uh, Stephen, tell, uh, tell the good people at home where they can find us. As always, you can find the podcast on Instagram at Who's Filmography. You can find me uh, on Instagram and Letterboxd at Mr. Filmart. Josh, where can the people find you? You can find me on Letterboxd. It's under Beesh, B-E-E-S-H, as always. Great. And next week, we all become vegetarians, guys. Hey, who needs to eat meat? (laughs) Because we are going to be going over Bong Joon-ho's sixth film, Okja. And my God. We are already in the last of this show. This is wild. I know. And we've already entered the streaming era of Bong Joon-ho's filmography. Wow, we've come a long way, but we will uh, save that for next time. All right, guys, we will see you next week. Have a good night, everybody.